this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Today, I'm going to be talking with Daryl Kulak and Hong Lee. They are professionals in the field and also authors of a book called The Journey to Enterprise Agility, Systems Thinking and Organizational Legacy. And the book focuses on how the disconnection in different parts of the organization through maybe different departments like architecture, HR, PMO, executive leadership, how those disconnections can cause organizations to stumble when they try to move towards business agility. And, and we're going to talk all about that. Um, we're going to talk about a specific scenario you might be experiencing. But before we get into, into all that, I'd like to invite the authors to introduce themselves and just give a quick rundown on their background. So Daryl, what about you? Thanks for having us on the podcast, Dave. Uh, we, we appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, so I'm Daryl Kulak. I work at uh, Leading Agile with, uh, with Dave. And um, I came up through the IT ranks um, since the 80s. So I started as a developer and became technical architect, project manager. And in the late 90s, uh, was kind of looking for uh, how to do these things better and stumbled onto you know iterative incremental uh, project life cycles. Uh, back then, it wasn't called agile, but you know, um, uh, just trying trying things a little differently from the waterfall. Trying to model. not do waterfall. <laughs> trying not anything to do anything but waterfall. It was yeah. terrible. I mean, as a <laughs> project manager, as architect, I was having to make up these big plans up front that I knew were wrong. Right. And I just thought there's got to be a better way. So once this iterative incremental stuff came along, I just jumped into it as fast as I could and tried to convince everybody around me and have been trying to convince people ever since. <laughs> so um, um, Hong and I uh, met in the late 90s and have been you know, kind of doing things together ever since. We had a startup and we had uh, been on several uh, teams together, several different companies where we've followed each other. And it's been it's been great. So um, uh, currently, I'm doing uh, agile transformation, and um, I'm leader of the studios group, which is the software development part of leading agile, and really enjoying the work here in the company. Cool. All right. Thank you. And Han, what about? And I guess maybe at the end of your introduction, you could talk about what led you to the book. Yeah. Um, um, actually, first of all, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I actually uh, have played very different roles in IT in industry. Uh, probably by now, uh, you can name some role like developer, like uh, uh, architect, data architect, blah, blah. Uh, I will say I, I have done that. Uh, but uh, um, I came from academic background, the first uh, uh, project I remember I had in industry uh, led me uh, to uh, run into Daryl. Uh, it was probably uh, end of the 1990s. Uh, okay. And since then, uh, uh, Daryl introduced me to the agile world. Uh, uh, that was uh, a very, very uh, pleasant experience so far for me. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm the um, uh, my role is the lead data scientist with a uh, uh, Horizon Control Group. Uh, but uh, the the agile approach is still something in my heart. Um, 
I started uh, this uh, pursuit because I had a very old question from my background, which is why we have so many projects failed in industry uh, these years. I believe even today, when we come to particularly a large scale project, the failure rate in industry is still very high. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that question uh, has bugged me uh, even before I come to industry. But after industry, and particularly once I was introduced to the agile practice, I'm learning more and more. And uh, I think we found our answer uh, for the, uh, you know, why we have high failure rate in industry for so many projects. Okay. It's interesting to me, you know, when, when I learned about the failure rate, I think it was still um, 70% when I, when I learned about the chaos yeah. report studies. And I just accepted it. Like I didn't, <laughs> like, well, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, 30% yeah. of the things don't suck and everything else does. Um, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't something that I, f- I felt like, I had any ability to fix, but you guys have tried to figure out the cause or, well, or causes. Compare, yeah. Right? Dave, if you compare it to other industries, you know, what if 70% of all the bridges failed, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> what if, yeah, yeah. What if the, the buildings that got, you know, erected uh, 70% of them fell down, you know, that would not be good. <laughs> so yeah. 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 We're, so we're kind it, of aspiring to, yeah. to having a better success rate, just in comparison to other industries. Can I, I want to share something that really quick because I think this might offer an interesting counterpoint to what I know, where I know we're going in a second. Um, the only field that I know of where 30% is going to be acceptable is professional baseball. Like if you were hitting 300, you'd probably be rich and that'd be <laughs> nice. But um, for me as a project manager, what that taught me was I need to find a different way to measure my own success. And so I didn't even bother the thought of changing that or, or pursuing the question that you guys are pursuing. I just thought, okay, I need a different way to measure myself or I'm going to be miserable every single day. Yeah. Um, but, but I didn't even have the spark to think, oh, I could, maybe I could make this not like that. Um, which I think going where we're going with, with some of the stuff that you guys are chasing after, I think that's it. It's a sad, sad commentary on how I was raised as a project manager. <laughs> yeah. See, uh, usually when uh, project managers see a, their projects are running some difficult uh, stage, what would they do usually? Documentation. Document yeah. everything and watch everything and follow the procedure, make a detailed schedule, more and more details. Yeah. And the step-by-step step, step. So what that lead to? Nothing. <laughs> it's just more schedules. It's, actually, it's not nothing. It's high cost. Cost okay. is high. <laughs> the, 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 how do I say? The overhead is becoming higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And the people in the team is unhappier and happier. And more. we don't have anything good to show for it at the end, yeah. except more schedules. Yeah, more schedules and the more documentation to yeah. prove we have done something. 
And it's not our fault. <laughs> That's a, a number speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. when you think about, uh, I want before we get into the the answer that you found for the question, I'm wondering if you could comment briefly on your approach to this problem. So I know that it's it involves system thinking. I know you're looking at the whole enterprise, but um, could you could you comment on on how you see these things tying together to be the inhibitor of success? Um, yeah, um, I will go first this time, uh, but Daryl, uh, let let you you will uh, help me out, right? Sure. So our focus when we should say more documentation, more disciplinary action, all these things, our focus is on a rigid system. We, our expectation is we expect everyone perform based on these rigid rules. But what is different is the project uh, reality never follow any rigid rule. You may demand your team, your developer, your project manager to follow some rigid rules, but the reality doesn't play along nicely. Okay. Yeah. So, so in this process, what we forgot, we forgot we are pushing our people to an ugly reality and we we treat them as machines and the parts of machines. We assume this rigid machine will cope with the ugly reality somehow magically nice way. Yeah. This is a this is a is this is true or this is just visual thinking. Daryl? Yeah. So if I if I had to narrow it down to say what, you know, what was the, what's the problem that, that has caused so many failures, I think a big part of it, you know, we, we have the term BDUF, like big design upfront. Yeah. Like that, that the assumption that if you're looking at a complex problem and a complex solution to the problem and the assumption that I can know a lot of how to go about this upfront is a mistake. And I need an exploratory mindset instead. And so that I think is, is, is what attracted me to, to agile and what attracted Hong after, you know, what he, what he had done in university and, and with industrial engineering. Um, it's what got us to that point that, that somebody was saying, we also recognize this problem, you know, yeah. Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham, these folks, we also recognize this problem and we think we have a part of a solution to it. And so that, I think that's a, the, the BDUF, you know, yeah. BDUF itself in Waterfall, it's, it's a, it's a worldview. It's a way of seeing the world. And there are certain assumptions that come with that worldview that, uh, that, that, that aren't correct, that aren't, aren't right. If they're only right in, in very simple situations. If I'm making dinner, I can, I can, I can know a lot of what's going to go on and, and kind of predict it. If it's a complex project with multiple people and, you know, changing requirements and changing market, I can't know it. Right. 
It's also interesting the way you talk about it. It sounds like curiosity is sort of a driving mechanism there. Whereas for me, the, you know, the way I was taught to do this stuff originally was if you are careful and you do your work up front, you know, you measure twice, you cut once, you'll, you'll be right. And if you did a bad job, then that's when things don't work out the way you intended Right. You must have, you must have measured wrong. You must have cut wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and there's lots of ways. I mean, that could be, I measured wrong or planned wrong. I interacted with a team member wrong. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to fail, but in every case I failed as opposed to I learned. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. You could call it the curiosity life cycle. <laughs> yeah. Just the agile life cycle. Okay. So, um, what is, I mean, you've, you've done all this work, you've written this book, and I'm going to ask you if you can walk through a specific example of something from the book in a moment, but is there a way that you can give us like a short answer to the question? I know it probably takes the whole book to get through it, but like, what's the, the quick version of this is why everything fails? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we, we've, we've needed to do that just in, in talking to people about the book. So I think we have that <clears throat> explanation. So, you know, there's so much that's already been done so much that's already been written about in the agile life cycle. <clears throat> and there, there are two aspects to it. One is that you have these, these frameworks, so you have scrum and you have safe and, and many others um, that describe a, a situation that you can strive for. And we call it like the shining city on the hill. So you have the, the scaled agile framework uh, that's that's out there and this is where we're going. And that's great. It's good to have a picture of where where you want to be. The, the, the part of the description that Hong and I always struggled with on projects was how do you get there? Like yeah. how, what about the journey so that's why we call it the, called the title of it. But what about the journey to enterprise agility, not just the vision of enterprise agility? And so, so much of our book is about that journey and all the different things you're going to run into. Like, you know, um, people's job descriptions don't match how they will need to operate in an agile environment. So you got to talk to HR. Right. Enterprise architectures wanting to see your architecture diagram when you're 30% of the way through the project. So what's, you know, what's your detailed architecture uh, diagram? You don't have it yet because your architecture is emergent. Um, the PMO is talking to you and saying, I want to see your, you know, estimates to complete for each of the roles. I'm sorry, you know, we, we're not working that yeah. way. So you have all of these mismatches um, between the agile team and the rest of the enterprise. And for us, the, a big part of writing this book was, that we wanted to just document the things that we had learned after failing and, you know, then succeeding in each one of these situations with the journey part of it, the, the okay. complicated, messy jungle that you have to get through in order to, to even catch a glimpse of the shining city on the hill. So that's the places where the system is organized in a way or structured in a way that is basically tripping you every time you take a step. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and <clears throat> the system is much bigger than just what happens in your team room or even what happens in your program. Yeah. There's, it's the whole enterprise. It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's HR, it's enterprise architecture, it's the PMO. It, it's, um, 
you know, the method, the corporate methodology group, all of those folks are trying to do their jobs and they see you as being in the way yeah. because there's a mismatch. There's, we, we call it in the book, we call it an impedance mismatch, you know? Okay. It's like the plug doesn't fit. Yeah. Maybe you should explain impedance mismatch for the non-engineers. Okay, sure. <laughs> for, for, for those of us who got communications degrees, um, what yeah, is it? sure. It's it's. Uh, it, um, I, I can say as much as I understand of it, but if you have, if you have, <laughs> uh, let's say you have like we have a, a dryer, a, a clothes dryer in a house that's two hundred twenty volts, and if I'm trying to plug that into a hundred and ten volt outlet. Um, I'm going to, very bad things are going to happen. You know, the dryer is going to short out and, the, and I'll probably set my house on fire. Yeah. So there, there's this mismatch between, or, you know, if you go to Europe and you have a plug from your, from your laptop that, that goes into the wall and the, the, the outlet on the wall looks different than your plug does, it's not going to fit. Yeah. So those are examples. Well, or of, you buy one of those adapters. It doesn't convert anything. It just makes the plugs go in. Yeah, but it's not. It doesn't downgrade from two twenty to one ten. Yeah, right. that's right. Okay. All right. Cool. So, so you're trying to help people see where they have these things cropping up all throughout the system that are getting in the way of the organization's ability to actually do some of this stuff yeah. that would solve the problem of this is why we're failing. Yeah, that's right. So that's the the, the subtitle, the, the second part of the title, um, systems thinking and organizational legacy. Yeah. So it, you never, you you know, unless you have a startup that, unless you have, you know, Dave Pryor incorporated that you're, you're building some software from the very start, <clears throat> then um, you're always going to have organizational legacy. Okay. And, and a big part of success in agile transformation is un, un, accepting that organizational legacy is there and then doing things to map so that uh, from from what those groups need to what the agile team can provide and, and needs and and then uh, making everybody's job easier. Okay, yeah. Uh, actually, Dave, you, you mentioned as a, a, a project management and point of view, yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, some something like upfront uh, documentation, yeah. upfront analysis. Uh, the, the 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 first question is why it always lead to a place uh, kind of a, a people will point the finger. You didn't do your job. I didn't do. Who didn't do their job? Right. Uh, and and we need to do more and more investigation, more and more analysis. But people, uh, so I the, think, in that context, are more interested in blame than learning. Yeah. So, so, but there's a hidden assumption. The assumption I believe is the world is documentable with the limited effort. Oh wow! Okay. Right. So, so tell me which project tell us that is the true reality. Yeah, or we are just feeding our highly simplified world view, squeeze them into our project room, and neglecting the outside world is much more colorful, is much more unpredictable. 
You know, it's funny hearing you talk about it now. I'm thinking about the way I've described some of the issues that happen with this. And um, it seems to me like there's, I feel like there's a lot of arrogance in, yes. in, the, in the idea that if I sit here long enough, I'm going to be able to figure out everything that's going to happen for the next two years on something yeah. we've never done before with people I've never met for a client who doesn't even know what their problem is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a little more humility might help me realize I get to the thing that Daryl brought up, which is it's the curiosity we need to be after. Well, it's it. You could say arrogance, but it's based on fact because, mm-hmm. I mean, look at the things we've been able to accomplish with with big design up front. You know, we we have made assembly lines that produce vehicles that can take people yeah. at six miles an hour. We've gone to the moon. I mean, we have these big government, uh, United Nations, intergovernmental organizations. Two world wars we got through. Yeah. Things. Yeah. We've accomplished wonderful things with this, with this waterfall, you know, kind of organizational approach. It, it is able to do some things, but in the terms of software development, um, that it can get us in trouble. And so it's, you could say arrogance, but it's actually based on a lot of good experiences that we've had. And it's kind of like, Oh, we can apply this to everything. And it's not true. Yeah. I guess, I guess um, I completely agree with what you're saying. And then I kind of go to Winston Royce on this one. If it's, if there are things that are, are knowable, like repeatable, then yeah. You know, I build a house one way. I'm going to build the same kind of house in the same kind of environment the next day. Sure. But if I'm doing something we've never, ever done before, maybe that's where I feel like the, the arrogance slips in. Yeah. So let's say you're building, you're building a house that has to have net zero emissions. Um, and, and your, your house building company has never done that before. You might be in a good place then to take a more agile approach, a more iterative incremental approach yeah. to that. Test some things, try it out, get some, do some metrics, get some feedback. That's, you know, even, even house building, uh, could, could there's variables. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Could we talk to an example of something that you both touch on in the book that is kind of gives a good explanation of the kind of stuff that you're, you know, addressing in the book gives people a taste for what they'll find if they go check it out. Yeah, sure. Uh, so part of what we're saying with these frameworks, you know, like scrum and safe and stuff is that you got to go beyond that. Um, there's there's a bigger picture um, that that you can that systems thinking can help, and we can talk about definition of systems thinking, <laughs> which is its own uh, ball of uh, mud. Um, that that systems thinking can help, and and part of what we talk about at the beginning of the book, that's kind of a thread that goes all the way through. Um, it comes from Buddhism, so. Uh, some people are surprised. I got an email from somebody who looked at my book yesterday and, and he said, you have Buddhism in your book. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but, uh, you know, usually we say in mixed company, you shouldn't talk about religion or politics. And we sprinkle that all the way through this book. So, you know, we're in big trouble. Um, but uh, what, You're in a safe place here. I am totally happy talking about religion and politics. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> this, this podcast, uh, uh, allows will be uh, canceled all... at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so we took something called the noble eightfold path um, from Buddhism, which is this kind of this picture of how to have a good life. And we took, we took part of that really 
bastardize it, to tell you the truth. But we took part of that. We took four of the folds of the eightfold path. And then we said how these apply to this question that we're talking about. So we have, um, we have right view, right worldview, right intention, right speech, and right action. And so if you think about the, the, the frameworks, if you think about Scrum and you think about SAFE um, and Nexus and you know, um, TDD and all these things, they're really only about the practices and the speech. So don't call it a phase anymore, call it a sprint because it means something different. Don't call me a project manager anymore. Call me a scrum master. Okay, so that's the speech part. Change your speech. Okay. Um, and, then, and then everything about best practices and everything about uh, the frameworks that, that people use, that's about right action. So there's a right way to go about this. But then it stops there. And what we're saying in this book is that there's two other pieces to this, which is intention and worldview. And, you know, worldview is what it sounds like. It's, it's a way of seeing the world, which we can get into a bit more later. Um, and intention <clears throat> is, is what is my intention behind doing this practice? So, for instance, you know, Dave, we, we, we go to a lot of different clients and we say, you know, are you doing Agile already? And they say, oh, yes, we're doing daily stand-ups. <laughs> and it, it's, it's almost become kind of a joke now. Um, but once you dig into it, the intention of the daily standup is also very important beyond the practice. So if we've, if we've got a daily standup, let's say, let's say I'm the, I'm the manager of this group and I say, okay, Hong, you know, tell me, tell me your status. And we go around and we stood up, we <laughs> were actually standing up, but I'm going around to each person and saying, what's your status yeah. and trying to kind of like make you work harder as part of the daily standup. My intention's wrong. So the practice is there, but if if I have the wrong intention, I can do do all the right things and still not get any good result from it. And that applies to all the different all the different practices. If I'm writing automated tests, but the only reason I'm doing that is for test coverage to because I, you know, I yeah, get you know, paid 10% more for. if I have 90% test coverage, my intention's probably gonna be wrong. So uh so that's a big part of it. So that's that's kind of a, a thread that we have all the way through this book that we're we're, we're quite proud of, and we feel like it it um, helps our readers a lot. Yeah, is um, having this part of the of uh, the Buddhist uh, noble path as a way to understand going beyond just practices. I think the speech thing is really interesting because I can think of a number of times, especially earlier on, when I have said things in a room full of Agile people, and they have looked at me like I just said something really offensive, like referring to people as resources or, you know, challenging the utilization of a particular resource and things like that. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not that it's wrong to change the speech. Like, it, it's, it's okay uh, if... If I say phase rather than sprint, phase sounds longer, you know, like it sounds yeah. like months and months and months of something. I have an analysis phase. I'm not going to write any code. I'm just going to, you know, do interviews. I'm just going to write documentation. So it it's it's a good part of it, but it's not enough in itself. Yeah. And people get too caught up in just the speech. You know, people talk about you put you put labels on the waterfall process, you put, you know, agile labels on the waterfall process. Um, 
it's it's not going to work it's just it's not enough yeah you know it's, it's interesting i mean i'm looking at a list of the other four um the other four elements and um and i'm feeling like you could probably include them as well if i mean if you tied it back to the manifesto like livelihood effort mindfulness and concentration you could find a way to connect all of those too i think so well, yeah. i think so um, I, I think what, what we have done even a little bit more here is we are asking people to think why we are doing these things. Okay. Instead of just invent another ritual, another rule, yeah. another practice. Just we need to think why we are doing these things. And uh, what is the world will behind the why one of the things that I, I was thinking about when you were just talking was there's things that each of us does in our life where you start to do it and it might kind of not be super pleasant in the beginning but you stick with it and as you stick with it maybe the original reason you came to that thing kind of drops away and you see it in a different way and it starts to to pay off in a different way if you have the right um intention when you approach it like for me um, meditation and daily scrums are very similar in that in the beginning, kind of painful. And I would go through the motions. I would just show up and I had a teacher say, just show up every day, just sit every day, just come into the daily scrum every day. Um, but because there was a focus on something more than just being there, it kind of evolved my understanding of what was supposed to happen how it was supposed to work and the results evolved as well to the point where now I completely get it in a way that I didn't in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit more about worldview? Cause that's one I'm, I'm not sure I'm totally sorted on yet. Sure. Yeah. And I think, so now that we've covered religion, I, I'll get into politics just, just to check that box. Um, make sure we'll have to fit sex in here later on as well. Oh, that would be good. <laughs> um, so worldviews. So for instance, you know, the, the religions themselves, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, Islam, um, uh, Judaism. So, so each, each of those religions provides a worldview for people. And that's a, actually a big attraction of it. It's like, you know, if you can, if you can be part of this religion, um, it, it can give you uh, a worldview. And, and the same is true for, for political parties, or at least uh, political um, perspectives. There, there's an author named George Lakoff who describes two prevalent worldviews in, in American politics, conservative and liberal. And so the, the worldview that he gives for each of those, I, I, I found to be very clear, um, which is as a conservative, I, I see the world as a strict father. So um, if, I, if I've got that strict father worldview, um, it, it says people need to be watched closely to prevent wrongdoing. Okay. And <clears throat> if people do an incorrect action, they need to be punished. Okay. So that's kind of, it's a strict father worldview and it aligns very well with conservatism. Um, and if I'm a liberal, um, his, his name for that worldview is nurturing parent, which says that I, I like to see the good in people. And I assume that people can be rehabilitated, uh, rather than punished. And I, I want to, um, 
I want to, uh, you know, focus on people who are less fortunate and, and kind of like let the government, you know, to kind of take care of people who are less fortunate. And so you can see how those two worldviews conflict and you can see how somebody would want to sign up for one or the other. Um, and, and then kind of say, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about the world, uh, is, is that matches up with, with me. Um, so yeah, religions, uh, political parties, um, startups, in fact, companies actually have a worldview and what we've, what Hong and I have seen when we work with startup companies, like maybe, uh, some, you know, some startups we've worked with are like five or 10 years old. They have their own worldview that they've built up. Yeah, about their own success, and so in 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 some cases we've had to try to convince them out of part of that worldview, because what got them to this point, you know, what got them to a fifty million dollar company, is not going to be what gets them to be a hundred million dollar company. Right, and so the worldview has to be adjusted, and that's very very difficult. We build up our worldview based on the successes that we have in our life, and 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 as as a group. And um, we don't like changing it. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so I guess I want to just check in on this. That's a little bit to the cultural side of things. Like if I work in an organization that has become successful by treating people like cogs in a machine, that is baked into the way, you know, everything it does and changing that's going to be really hard. That, that couldn't, you couldn't be better put. <laughs> okay. So, the mechanical, we call it the mechanical worldview. Yeah, the, the Taylorist approach is very prevalent, and it leads to the waterfall life cycle. It leads to you know big design up front, um, and in in many cases, it leads to project failure. Okay. And and the other worldview, the the opposing worldview, kind of the you know conservative liberal, <laughs> the opposing worldview to mechanical is the organic worldview which is um, this, this is an organism, this project, this team is an organism. It's like a garden. And so you can't yell at the plants to say, grow, grow, grow. Uh, you, 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 there, there are ways that you can nurture the plants to health and to, to growth. And that uh, is more of an agile uh, worldview. Okay. But all right. I could take this very extremely. It's going to try to hold, reel that back in. We'll pull back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with things like this, if you're talking about systems thinking, maybe you can kind of lay out how you approach that viewpoint with with this particular type of stuff in an organization. If they have a worldview that is counter to what they say they want. Systems thinking, like I said before, is a big ball of mud, <laughs> like so many things. So there are many different campfires of thought in systems thinking. And so when we say systems thinking, uh, somebody might switch their mind to Six Sigma or, or lean uh, manufacturing or those things. And those are qualified systems thinking campfires of thought, but they're not the ones that we talk about in this book. Uh, we instead take from a different part of systems thinking, which is uh, called soft systems thinking. And we kind of explain the difference between hard and soft in the book. Um, but this is more about the people side of things and, and, you know, the things that we've been talking about. So it's, uh, it's, it's understanding culture. It's understanding 
um, that people have different perspectives and opinions and, and uh, trying to, um, trying to create like a set of principles around uh, uh, a more agile way of looking at teamwork. So for instance, um, we, we list uh, some systems thinking principles in our book. One, one of them is trust equals speed. So if, if my teammates trust each other, then we can move much more quickly. Um, even if we don't change our practices, if we can just get to trust each other, Another one of the principles is um, blame the system, not the person. So that actually comes from W. Edwards Deming uh, and, and the Toyota production system. So if we are getting to situations where people are kind of focused on, you know, covering my own part of the part of the project, part of the business, and focusing blame elsewhere, then you know it's just high, it can be highly unproductive. Um, and another principle is treat people like people, not like machines, um, which we've talked about the mechanical mindset. And <clears throat> so, you know, it, we tried to create kind of the set of principles that would guide people towards a systems thinking mindset that goes fairly far beyond Six Sigma and Lean. Actually, Dave, you mentioned something when you start asking these questions. Uh, you said in organization, uh, in some organization, traditionally or conventionally, either way, uh, they already have a culture. Uh, they treat uh, their employees as the term was you you were using was cogs, yeah, and uh, wheels, right? Yeah, cogs in a machine. Yep, uh, cog in machine. Um, I will. Uh, borrow the system view from that perspective. Actually, you will run into people. They have that kind of view, but they claim that is their system view as well. So, so that, are you saying that they, they see themselves as cogs? No, they see actually frequently that kind of a view come from top executives. What they hope is they are running a company like a mechanics running a oh, machine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right? And that is actually a special system view as well. But uh, kind of a, what Dario and I are talking about is we are differenti differentiating ourselves from that kind of a system view. Because even today, uh, when people uh, you, you can run uh, into some people who claim to be the guru of uh, Six Sigma, all, all these things. But when you go into detail, they just give you uh, one set of rules after another so that you can run your organization accordingly. And what's missing is what is the role of people? And what is the actual role of this uh, uh, machine parts, cock, are they really, really machine parts? Yeah, so, or do they do they each have their own perspectives, yeah. their own experience, their own opinions that they can bring to the table and that yeah. you as a business can benefit from mm -hmm. uh, if you actually uh, acknowledge it and, and value it? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's so. interesting. I'm wondering, listening to you both talk about it, 
Um, there's a part of me that thinks that thinking of humans this way is, is really not healthy. Um, unless that is like, if I sign up to work on a factory line and I'm just supposed to do one thing one way and everybody tells me that and I, and I buy into that, then maybe, okay. But if we're talking about human beings, they are each one of them unto themselves as a system. And even and, factories though, Dave, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Toyota production system, People get caught up in all of the, you know, the Andon cord and, yeah. and the Muda for waste and all this stuff. People get caught up in the practices, but there is a system behind the Toyota production system that is all about valuing people. Well, so this and, is where I'm going is, can we get to a place where they're human cogs, jogs, cogs that we respect and we trust, and we know each one's going to be different and they're never going to fit the same way, but we honor their contribution and and try to build something around them that can support them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, we had a project uh, with uh, Honda Manufacturing right at Ohio. Uh, you know, that's okay. a neighbor uh, in uh, Marysville. So where we learned firsthand, they have a uh, lunchtime break which was just 30 minutes. And when we questioned more, we found out that was the collective decision made by these Honda workers. They chose so, the half hour lunch break. Yeah, instead of one hour. Why? They want, <laughs> they, they believe uh, 30 minutes should be enough uh, so that they can finish their daily work, go home earlier. Ah, okay. See, okay. See, that, that is a typical, typical manufacturing environment. And they, they are very proud of their job. Yeah. And, the, and the, they even say, yeah, <laughs> kind of, a, I hope that this will not cause trouble for you. They, they say they are doing better job than Toyota. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 It it was a it was amazing working yeah. there really. And and all the all the, the kind of the cliche things that you think about factory work just were not true, you know. Um it, it was it was really amazing place to work. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So if you if you're looking at an organization, an IT company or a big company with it with that large component to it, um how do you help them begin to see, I mean, see the systems that they've created or that they're supporting and, and how do you help them figure out which ones need to change? I hope um, people by now have learned a lot because we have this, uh, you know, used to be emerging company in the IT uh, space uh, like uh, Google, like uh, Facebook, uh, all, all these things, right? And then right now, they are growing, growing, growing. And uh, uh, But we also had old IT companies. I don't want to mention their name. <laughs> they uh, know who they are. Even, yeah, they know. <laughs> and they, they are actually talking about how they can recruit young people into organization with the uh, highly motivated uh, work spirit. Yeah. So they can we, crush it out of them. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I hope uh, we don't have to name all these uh, living examples anymore. It's kind of a are, are we stuck with the old world wheel? We think the whole world is just a machine, and then not much change will happen to it, or we are treating the whole world as a living and evolving, uh, actually uh, changing place. And we have to learn how to adapt. Okay. So this is a, actually, this, I believe, come directly from our business model. And that behind that business model is the world view. Okay. That's and right. so, yeah. so I have a question for both of you. And in a moment, we're going to talk about where you can check out the book. Um, and now you can get a special discount on the book if you want. But um, a question for both of you. If you could snap your fingers and that failure rate, whether it's 70% or higher, um, you could instantly change that so that all the projects were successful. Or you could snap your fingers so that all the companies honored all the humans and treated them with greater respect and honored their contribution. And we might still fail a bunch of projects. Which would you rather? <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> snap the finger. <laughs> so, like in the Avengers I, movie, you snap your fingers and all the projects succeed, but we still treat people kind of crappy a lot of the time. Or you snap your fingers and a bunch of projects still fail. But everybody's treated didn't, didn't like half the half the people in the universe die in the Avengers. Yeah, but then they brought them back. <laughs> <laughs> they snap their fingers and bring them back. So it's it's our thesis that you you can't have all the projects succeed um, if you don't value people. That that's that's uh, table stakes. Okay. Um, so so uh, we won't give an answer. <laughs> no, that, I think that is an answer. So if you take care of one, it it, it will take care of. Well, let me. I thought you were going to say, maybe I have to cut this part out, but I thought you were going to say that <laughs> if you take care of the people and build systems that support them, the projects that need to succeed will, and the ones that need to stop will stop. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, not every project needs to succeed. Yeah, that's a good way of, of yeah. putting it. Okay. Yeah. See, see we, <clears throat> we cannot promise there's no failure. Right, that's that should be part of the things we we have to acknowledge. There, frequently we have things beyond uh, our uh, how do I say reach. Okay, uh, and we have to acknowledge that. But uh, we still uh, have to uh, pay attention for another part. Uh, which I call the sustainability. Okay. Right? So if we fail and fail miserably and we killed everyone in the system, and that's something different. But if we fail, but failed in a nicer way, you know, like, like in, in the financial industry, we have a soft landing, we have a hard landing, right? So if we have the people uh, around us, support us. Uh, I think what we can promise, at least, we we could avoid the hard landing. 
Okay. Yeah. And, and there's also an aspect of, of the fail fast principle to this. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we can help you if your project, you know, is destined to, to fail. Like if, if this is a project, if this is a, a, a product that the company should not be building, we can help you find that out faster. Yeah. And I, so I think good failure is part of this. Yes. Um, and we can just get you there faster so that you're not spending too much time on failures. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, and or- hopefully, learning, right? I mean, to me, that's right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. you could have a really hard landing, but if you've got some valuable information, you can take away so that you can try again. That's the yeah. that's the good part. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The, and the overall, uh, you know, if we come back to system thinking, overall, that's the uh, kind of a uh, on large scale, higher scale, the sustain- sustainability for the yeah. business and the, for the people involved. Yeah. Okay, this was great. Um, thank you both for doing this. So, um, Daryl, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? So it's my first name, last name, Daryl Kulak at protonmail.com okay. for email. And I also have a Twitter account that I do monitor. And so that's just uh, at Daryl Kulak. All right, cool. And Hong, what about you? Uh, just use my Gmail uh, uh, address, uh, which is hli. 66.2011 at gmail.com. All right, cool. I'll include and, links and we're both to both on LinkedIn too. Okay, yeah. I'll make sure I include that as well. Now, what if they want to get the book? Oh, my. do you have a special offer for these people? I do. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> uh, I will talk about that. Um, so, so our book, our book is is published through Springer, Springer International. Great, you know, great academic publisher. We love them. We thank them for publishing us. Uh, but they, they determine the pricing. And, and so the hardcover of this book is like $79 on the Springer website. And I think Amazon brings it all the way down to $64, which is still criminal. So um, <clears throat> your options are, you could get the Kindle, which I think is, it's in like in the um, $20, $20, $25 range. And we also did an audiobook version of this, uh, which sells for $22 on Audible. Uh, but um, I, I have some of the books myself in my basement. And so I wanted to offer on this podcast to your listeners um, that I would uh, ship the books. Um, so shipping cost, book, and sales tax all included. I would ship the book to folks for $30. Bucks. Um, wow. And for people in US and Canada... Uh, I can, we can figure out something uh, pay me on Venmo or whatever to, to make that happen. But I just wanted to offer that because it, the book is really expensive. And if you want the hardcover, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna pay dearly. for yeah. it. So that was, that was one thing we wanted to do in this podcast is just offer that to your listeners. Cool. Well, thank you. It was very generous. Um, and so I'll, so if you want to get the book that way, just contact Daryl and you can set that up. Um, and thank you both very much for your time. This was a, a really fun conversation. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, it's great to be here. We appreciate the invitation. Mm-hmm.